If you've been with us, we're in a long series in the book of Acts, not to look at the ancient church, but to look at who we are called to be as the people of God in 2015 and beyond. And we've already learned lots of stuff. Let me just summarize. Church is always a mixed bag. You have people who are authentic. You have people who have hidden corruption. You have the rich, you have the poor. You have those who understand the scriptures and those who are trying to figure out if it's true or what it means. It's always a mixed bag. So when looking for a church, don't look for a perfect community. It doesn't exist. It didn't exist. So you're off the mark already. But we are seeing that the church is a family and it's a growing organism. And so the church has been growing all throughout the first few chapters. And now they're hitting a challenge because we are an organism. The church is alive. It's a body, a family. And it's also an organization. You have leaders and followers. You have bylaws and bank accounts. We share a bank account. We actually do. The church has one. And you contribute towards it. And it's spent. How do you wrestle with that? Because whenever you get people together, family, friends, no matter what the organization or style, you're going to have conflict, aren't you? Get people in an office together. Same cause, same swoosh, same whatever, you know, Nike. Anyway, you know, same mantra, but they're people. And so in every department, you're going to have conflict. In every family, in every school, in every church, what do we do with that? So this morning, we want to look at how the family wrestled with conflict. And uh, this isn't a hypothetical issue. Right now, you are struggling with conflict with someone, maybe big, maybe small. It may be over the top, maybe crushing your world. How do you, through the scriptures, by the Spirit, walk through conflict? We're going to see it. Acts 6, verse 1. It says, In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, so the church is growing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked In the daily distribution of food. Notice two types of Jews and one group is going to the other group saying, hey, something's not right. What do they do? Verse two. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters. Stop there for a minute. Brothers and what? Sisters, this is a family thing. Even though they have differences, Hellenistic, Hebraic, we'll get into that. They don't see themselves as different groups meeting in the same building. They see themselves as part of the same family. Choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. And they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Now, what's the result? What happens when a community, and we're not given all the details, what happens when we walk through conflict well? Look at what happens. Verse 7. So the word of God spread. 
And the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And then, and then Luke gives us a tidbit. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Luke, all throughout Acts, gives these little summary lines, and he's totally strategic. There are points when the church takes a rapid incline and increase and growth. And this is the first of about seven we're going to see all throughout Acts where Luke is going to mark out this thing done right led to something. And wouldn't it be great if the grace of God spread all over the Sunset Corridor? And wouldn't it be great if people were transformed by the gospel in ever-increasing ways? Wouldn't it be great if this gathering wasn't enough and we needed to add more and more and one missional community at a time to introduce wasn't enough so we had to have more and more because the grace of God, the word of God is spreading. And even a number of priests, so those who are leaders in Judaism who had at this point ignored Jesus. Even the top leaders are starting to crumble in their resistance to Jesus and they're coming to faith in Jesus. This is the work of the Spirit. But it could have stopped and it could have stopped because of a lack of conflict resolution. A couple of things for us to think about uh, this morning as we think about our situation. We are a multicultural family. What you see here is a multicultural family. The church has always been multicultural. Day one. You see it because it starts with Jesus, who is of the household of Israel. He is a Jew. But Jews are not on the same page in the first century or now. And so there are at least two types that we hear about. There are the, what do we see? Verse one, Hellenistic Jews, and then the Hebraic Jews. As a multicultural family, we're not going to eat the same. Just think about our, us in our own church. Today, after this gathering, you're going to have lunch, right? What are you going to have for lunch? Some of you are going to be like my daughter. She is Puerto Rican to the core. She wants rice and beans and chicken and avocado. She'd eat it every day. That's just like old school Puerto Rican food. And uh, some of you are going to do soups and sandwiches. Some of you are going to do burgers and fries, sandwiches and chips, salad and tofu. Whatever you're going to eat, you're going to eat something, and it's probably different than the rest. Our eating style is just a reflection of our cultural heritage. And there's nothing wrong with that. But let's just pull it one step deeper. We don't even see church the same because we all come with a cultural perspective. So what's happening here uh, in the text is you have Hellenistic Jews are from outside Jerusalem. Remember in Acts 2, when the gospel spread, it spread when Jews had traveled to the festival called Pentecost. So Jews are from all over the known world. They had come to Jerusalem to worship, but those who worship outside of Jerusalem worship differently because of their ethnic background. Uh, they were Hellenized. They were Greek speakers in this day. Greek was the English. In America, English is the first language. Think first century, it's Greek. So they follow the customs of Rome. They do worship in synagogue in Greek, not in the language of the Jerusalem Jews. So you have the Hellenized, Greek-speaking, and you have the Hebraic. The Hebraic Jews were from Jerusalem, where temple is, and they spoke Aramaic. Jesus, more than likely, spoke Aramaic. Disciples were Hebraic Jews. They spoke Aramaic. So they have cultural differences. Same theology, same God. Just like here, we eat different lunch. 
you, you celebrate different holidays, you have different customs, we have something in common, but usually it's the things we don't have in common that give the rub, don't. Like some of you are into long messages, I love you. Some of you are into sermonettes, 15 minutes and I'm done, I'm working on you, you know. We have, we have just different cultural styles. Think of worship. Worship, just like today, we have English speaking as a predominant language here, but we, all, we have a growing Hispanic community. And so if, what happens when our Hispanic brothers and sisters, uh, my name is Jose Zayas. I have an affinity towards this. What happens when our Hispanic brothers and sisters come and the language, their primary language is different. So this is a real conflict. And cultural in Latin culture, worship is vibrant and they're singing and dancing and raising of hands. And in Anglo-Saxon tradition, it's coffee cups and pockets and stiff looks. Cultural differences, not right or wrong, different. Not most important, but they can create the most uh, lingering rub in a community. Churches are often destroyed not by theology, They're destroyed internally by conflict that at the root of it, it's secondary cultural differences that we don't learn to resolve. So you have two sets of people in the church and what do they do? Let's just read the text again and we'll work through it. It's it's fairly simple. In those days, um, a number of disciples were increasing. Hellenistic, Greek-speaking Jews complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows are being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So you have widows in need. Now, there is no um, government assistance at this stage. So the caring of widows is the role of the family, family responsibility. So there is no retirement package. There's no, you know, 401k. There's no Medicaid, Medicare. If you did not have family, you died. In the family of God, they had to figure out, how's the family of God going to take care of those who are older? And if, if you don't think this is a real issue, some of my research discovered, some scholars say, that 40% of women 40 and above were widows. Mortality rate is high. Women outlive men. They're just better. Their engine runs longer. We fall apart. But, th- but women are lasting longer than men. 40% up to are, are being in need. So it's the family's responsibility. So catch this with me. Hear this. The Hellenistic Jews are from outside Jerusalem. Now the church is inside Jerusalem. Some of these widows have made their way to Jerusalem, but they don't have a lot of family around. Chances are the Hellenistic Jews had a greater need because their family members weren't there to care for them. So they're counting on these different cultured Christians, the Hebraic Jews, those who love Jesus but are not of the same culture. They're counting on their support. And here's what happens. A group of leaders in it who are part of the Greek-speaking Hellenists outside Jerusalem say, say to the apostles who are all Jerusalem insiders, Our widows don't have enough. So they complain to him about the daily distribution of food. The word here is diakonia. And this is going to be important. Say diakonia. It sounds like the word deacon. And it's from, it's where we get the word deacon. Although he's not talking about deacons yet. So hold, hold that for later. 
But the daily distribution of food is the diakonia. And that is common service, the sharing, the generosity. So some were missing out on what was given every day or every week. This is food and money. Remember, we've seen twice already that the church, people with generous hearts, gave land, sold land, brought the money to the church. And then the apostles had the responsibility to see the needs, discern the needs. And what they probably did, we don't know exactly, they probably did, is they probably had some Hebraic Christians from the Hebraic Jewish sect or group and said, okay, you know the Aramaic-speaking widows, interview them, find out their need, find out where their family is, make sure their family is giving. It was the responsibility of the family, not the church, to take care of the widows. Find out, is the family owning up? They're doing the best they can. Okay, here's some more to top up the bank account. Then they found some of the Hellenistic Christians, those who are Greek-speaking. You know the Greek-speaking, the Greek-cultured ladies. Find out, where's their family? Is their family owning up? Oh, is the family doing everything? Well, let's, let's just top up the account. They're taking care of the most vulnerable people in the community. And this is the service. So diakonia is daily support or aid, right? Now, what do we see in terms of conflict resolution? Because they're dealing with food. Everyone needs to eat. Would you agree? Everyone needs to eat. So we're going to use this as a case study because it may not be food distribution in your situation, but the same principles can apply to any layer and any level of conflict. So let's, they're talking about food. You just fill in the blank on the issue that you're facing right now. What's the first thing that they do? How do we resolve our differences? How do we take care of the issues that could pull us apart? Notice, number one, they start a conversation. There's three things they do here. They start a conversation. The apostles' job is to keep the people together. They don't want a, a, a Aramaic-speaking and a Greek-speaking community within the church. They just want a Jesus-loving community where we, we learn each other's language, we learn each other's issues, each other's cultures, and we stay together. The apostles are going to fight for the unity of the church. No matter their cultural differences, They don't want to pull each, and this happens today. It is possible for churches to surround themselves in a monocultural way. One culture, that is it. Nothing wrong with that, except that's not the world we live in. It's not the world we live in. We live in a multicultural society, and if you take a church, and if the whole identity is around language, is around background, is around country, is around everything, and it excludes the people outside of it, it will miss out on the mission of God. It'll miss out on the mission. Because someone living next door may not be Chinese or Korean or Spanish, but the love of God should go to them too, shouldn't it? So we want to be a people that are multicultural because Jesus' gospel is to all cultures. We don't separate They choose to bring them together. They start a conversation. What do the apostles do? They listen there. I'm going to use English and Spanish because the whole Aramaic Greek may not speak our lingo. Let's just say the apostles all speak English. They bring the Spanish-speaking leaders, so to speak, and they bring them into the discussion and say, it's your widows that are, are being left out. Okay, what can we do about it? They start a conversation. 
And so this is what we need to do. We need to own up to the fact it is easier to walk away and be mad and upset and disappointed and just blow people off. It's always easier to blow your enemy off. But that is never the gospel solution. The gospel solution, conflict resolution, is that we start a conversation, we stay talking. And so the apostles who have all the authority listen to what's going on and include them. Now, here's the challenge in our day. We live in a digital age. They got in the same room. Can I suggest that's just wise advice? Get in the same room. The problem with technology is I can shoot you an email. I can shoot you a text. I can blog about you. I can Facebook. I can tweet. I can Instagram. And there's nothing you can do about it. So the missiles fly in a digital age. And no wonder there's so much tension. If you want to resolve conflict, start a real life conversation. If it's possible, avoid the phone. If it's possible, pony up the money, get on a plane, sit in a room, drink something warm, and talk. We need to talk. We need to discuss the issue. Now, you need to see what the apostles do. Verse 2, brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom, we will turn this responsibility over to them and give our attention to prayer and ministry of the word. Second thing you need to do is share responsibility. Share responsibility. The apostles or the leaders, they do not have to delegate. They are appointed by Jesus to lead. What do they do? They're English-speaking, so to speak. They take the Spanish-speaking leaders and say, it's your widows who are suffering you choose the leaders from amongst the Spanish-speaking people. Notice what they did. They recognized it's a real issue, real injustice, and that the people within the community have the spirit of wisdom, have the Holy Spirit, and they can manage the issue. They do not put the thumb and say, this is how it's going to go down. They say, you know what, brothers and sisters, the spirit is among you. You give us leaders who are full of the Spirit, you appoint. So look at the names that we see here. Verse 5, this proposal pleases the whole group. Stephen, that's a Greek-speaking name. Philip, Greek-speaking name. Um, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, all Greek-speaking names. What's my point? Apostles allowed the community to use wisdom and discernment to find out who are the best people. They shared responsibility. They did not micromanage And they said that there's all sorts of important ministry going. Go back to the middle of verse 3. Choose people who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We'll turn this responsibility over to them and give our attention to prayer. And this is an important word. And the ministry, diakonia, of the word. The daily distribution of funds is diakonia. The ministry of the word is diakonia. So they they delegate responsibility, they share responsibility, and it's not like the apostles say, okay, there's some clean jobs like praying and teaching. You don't get your hands dirty. And then there's dirty jobs like waiting on tables. That's a misreading of the text. 
to wait on tables in the first century is the responsibility of the eldest male in the household. Jesus at the Last Supper feeds the disciples. It is the father's responsibility to feed all of the household, family members, slaves, servants, employees. This is a respectable responsibility. That's why the apostles are doing that respectable work. They're doing the diaconia, the service of ministry to the poor. But there's another diaconia, which is teaching and praying and hearing from the spirit and the vision of the church. And the church is busting at the seams. So there's equal, hear this, equal ministry. Equal ministry. So the service, the waiting on tables could be translated the managing of the money table. The managing of the bank account. Choose seven men, the apostles say, English speakers to the Spanish speakers or whatever, Aramaic to Greek. You choose men who can manage the bank account who will take care of these women and that they're full of the spirit and we all see it. Wow, this would be great. We will serve together. So what we see is that in the community, there are all sorts of diaconia. There are all sorts of service and every ministry is equally important for the community to thrive. Every single thing is important. So you do not see apostolic ministry, prayer and and teaching and then waiting on tables because otherwise, why would they need to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom to clean off someone's slop? Waiting on tables is a high calling. Now, cleaning the tables is a high calling too. All of them are diaconia. So there are services, ministries, aids, supports, roles that every single member of the community is responsible to do. So what they see is when there is conflict, you have a conversation and you share the responsibility. You talk about it. You figure it out together. There's no right and wrong here. But the apostles knew there is, there's a number of ministries that they can do, but they shouldn't do. And the same can be said for you. The tyranny of the urgent will drive you insane. You're going to have to come to grips with, if you have the spirit and you have wisdom, what are the services, diaconia, ministries, responsibilities that you exclusively are called to focus on and How can you raise up other people to partner with you so that every need is met? That's how the church flourishes. Third thing in conflict resolution, and this is the the Christian unique one, and it's the most important. If you don't write anything down, write this down. Number three, pray and pray again. The apostles say we must commit ourselves to the ministry of prayer. God is wise. God is 25 steps ahead. We need to catch up and find out where God is at. And then what do they do here in the text? When they get these men together, look at verse eight. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed. So conflict is best resolved when you have a third party involved. Can I suggest this? Jesus is always the third party for us. So you have, you have, what do we do? You have one group says this, another group says that. They bring Jesus into the conversation. And at the end, both those who feel like they've been hurt and the ones who have responsibility, as they pray, they all affirm this is God's solution. And so 
They chose amongst themselves leaders because the apostles are the appointed head leaders of the church. They affirm what God is already doing. They all pray, they lay hands on them and they sent them out. Now, what we've been seeing in in Acts 5 and 6, 4, 5, and 6, is that the enemy wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And the reason that the enemy wants to steal, kill, and destroy is because what God is doing in the lives of his people throughout the world, he cannot stop. He can't stop the gospel from going forward, but he can stop you. He can stop your effectiveness. He can stop your influence. He can stop your witness. And so the enemy has been coming against the church in a series of ways. Two of them we've seen, and there are two more that I want us to see. So why does conflict, why is it so prevalent amongst the church? Write down four things that the enemy is trying to do to stop the church. Number one, the enemy is using persecution. Jesus wants everyone to experience life in him. So he will persecute. So sometimes people are put in prison for the faith. Sometimes there's real pushback from the enemy. He's trying to squash you. The enemy uses corruption. Ananias and Sapphira, their hearts are off. They give a gift, but their hearts are corrupt. And he's trying to infiltrate the church by having corrupt people enter places of influence. Have you ever said to yourself, I'm just not sure if this whole Christian thing is right because I knew a guy or I knew a girl and she was a leader. It turns out they were crooked, right? The enemy comes with persecution. He comes with corruption. Now we see two more things, two more ways he brings conflict. He brings division in the church. So he wants there to be a cultural rub to pull the church's effectiveness apart. We have always been, we will always be a multicultural community. And he's trying to get the church to say, no, it's not one community under Jesus' name. It's this community and that community and the other community. And we don't talk to each other. We don't like each other. As a matter of fact, we work against each other. And it happens all the time. So we need to resolve conflict because the conflict, hear this, the conflict is never just about you and another person. If you're a follower of Jesus, the conflict is about the gospel. Because if the enemy can get you off track through dividing you with another believer, he can stop the great things he wants to do. The fourth thing I want you to see is that the enemy wants to use distraction. He wants to get us off topic. So rather than preaching the gospel and healing the sick and seeing a move of God by the Spirit, what does the enemy want to do? He wants to, he wants to get the apostles doing too much. Ever just feel that way? Wow. I just, I, I don't have enough time. He wants us to be so busy that we lose prayer and the word of God. Can I just say this? In love with every bit of meanness intended. Every bit of meanness intended. If you do not have time to pray and to seek God through the scriptures, you are off, not God. Blunt. You are off. You've allowed the enemy to fill your life with so many good things that God has been squeezed out. So the best response is to repent, change mind, turn around and say, God, I can't believe I got duped. But I will not be duped anymore. 
Do not be distracted. John Stott, who's one of my favorite preachers from the UK, he passed away in recent years. This is his commentary on this text. We'll throw it on the screen. It's worth reading. It says, here we see that God calls all his people to ministry. That he calls different people to different ministries. And that those called to prayer in the ministry of the word must on no account allow themselves to be distracted from their priorities. Everyone has a role. Everyone has a mission. Everyone has a diaconia. Everyone does, not just me, you do as well. And so what the apostles do is by the spirit, they use wisdom and they say, there's too much. We will focus on this and you can raise up leaders that will approve to focus on the other important work. So my takeaway is that everyone is a servant. If you go into that conflict, let's go back to your conflict. It has nothing to do with food and distribution. If you go into the conflict with the posture of a servant, it changes the end game. If you go in with your rights, if you go in with your list of accomplishments, if you go in with your authority, of course it's going to blow up. But if you go in because you have the spirit and wisdom, even if the person that's coming against you does not, you have the spirit. If you go in with a humble servant attitude, God can diffuse the bomb and he can bring reconciliation. So everyone's a servant. So, okay, now we're going to apply this to us. The reason we did all the music on the upfront is we wanted to take time to do this. Remember, the book of Acts and our study is not about the ancient church. It's about our church. It's not about the gospel in Jerusalem. It's about the gospel on the Sunset Corridor. So here's what we want to do. In our last few minutes, we want to tease this out. What does it mean for you and me to be a part of this community? In Jerusalem church, Hebraic Jews, Hellenistic Jews, they met at the temple in Solomon's colonnade. They had regular meetings. They distributed food. They had a bank account. They did church. How do we do church? Let's talk about this, especially because so many of you are new to this family and you're trying to figure out, I don't even know what it means to be here. What does that mean for us? Four things. We are here to help People experience life in Jesus. We're going to throw it on the screen. Four ways that we do that. And now you have to evaluate if this is the place that you are called. Our vision and mission is crystal clear. The reason we are still breathing in here is because God is calling us to help people. We're not here for ourselves. We're called to help people experience life. What Jesus has done is worth sharing because it's life-giving. And it's in Jesus. We're not just a social club. We're just not another not-for-profit NGO, needs-based organization. We believe that Jesus is the answer to every question. And he is enough for you. So we're to help people experience life in Jesus. The way that we do that, our rhythms, our hows, are clear. We gather So if you feel called to be a part of this family, we expect that you'll be here on the weekend and when we call you for special gatherings like Seek Day coming up this Wednesday. I'm not asking you to consider maybe coming. I'm actually lovingly telling you this is important for us, not in a legalistic way, 
But in a loving way, this is important because the ministry of prayer will fuel the mission. And when we do not pray, we are ineffective. So I'm saying, take a day off and lose some money and pray. Not because I told you to do it, because Jesus is worth it. So be here. Enough pressure on that one. Secondly, scatter that, that every one of us, say everyone, every one of us will do life in Jesus on the weekend with the big group and outside of the, the big group. Look, I know some of you, and I'm getting to know, but you sit in different places and you change clothes and you come in with different people and it's really hard to keep tabs on who's who. But you know what? It is not my responsibility to know everyone by name. It is your responsibility to know people in your circle of influence and to love and serve and share with the people around you. I am not the leader of this church. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus is the leader of this church and he has a group of people to help fuel and facilitate diakonia ministry. I'm asking you to join one of the existing ones or talk with Matt, talk with our team about getting two or three other people and praying together once or twice a month with the idea that as the Spirit leads you, you will do life together. And God will show you how to live out the mission and God will show you how to love one another and God will show you how to grow as a disciple to Jesus. Okay, I am not suggesting that you should think about if it works for you to do life with other people. I'm actually telling you that this is the life-giving way. Now, I'm not over-caffeinated and I'm not mad at anybody. But I am saying that we take all of these things as suggestions and we wonder why we're frustrated. This is the path to growth in our community. Is this required to say that you're a Christian? No. But is this our path to grow as disciples of Jesus together? Yes. Third thing, serve. Serve the church and serve the city. Are you supposed to serve in the church? Are you supposed to serve the world that we live in? The answer is yes. Find your diakonia. It could be at the workplace. For most of you, your greatest service is to the people that you work with or go to school with and God's called you to love. It's not to serve here. If you have time and feel called, do that. But every one of us has a circle of people that God's put us in. Serve them, love them, care for them. Fourthly, give. Give financially and relationally. Put margin in your bank account and margin in your relational bank account, your bandwidth. Oh, I'm going to get so in trouble, but who cares? If you're involved in six sports, and I'll be outrageous, six sports, because lacrosse is important, and we all know that. And soccer is important, we all know that. European soccer uh, and American soccer. Football, whatever you want to call it. Okay, and so let's say pads, tackle football. That's, that's important. And baseball is important. And, and duh, Blazers in the playoffs for a little while. Basketball is important. And professional bowling is important, right? All those are important. And you say like, well, Jose, I would get involved in the gathering. I would serve and, and I would be in a missional community. It doesn't fit my schedule. 
Really. It's because you're involved in six sports. Drop six of them and you'll have margin. And if the Spirit gives you the ability to do one of those sports, then do that to the glory of God. Now, I'm being ridiculous on purpose. But we wonder why, why there's not more of the Spirit in our soul is because we, we've actually pushed him out with a thing called comfort. We want to be comfortable. So frankly, some of you, if this does not fit your lifestyle, will find the church to fit your lifestyle. And God forbid that we're the church that acquiesces to that stupidity. Amen. So I'm going to call it what it is. It is not our responsibility as leaders to make this cozy for you. It's our responsibility to say, here's the mission of God, and it's impossible without the Holy Spirit. So you need the Holy Spirit to be a parent, and you need the Holy Spirit to be a student, and you need the Holy Spirit to be a husband or a wife. You need the Holy Spirit to live. You need the Holy Spirit to be a good employer and employee. And guess what? I leak. So I need more of the Spirit in my life. And I need you to encourage me in the Spirit And so therefore, I need you to help me to grow because I will not grow by myself. Now, if that's offensive, I'll be better at the six and we'll podcast that one. (laughs) But I, you know, I'm I'm just kind of tired of hearing people moan about their lack of growth when they're not doing anything about it. So anyway, I did not do that for applause. And I hope everyone that's applauding is tithing. All right, so... (laughs) I'm on, man. (laughs) Okay, so let's just land the plane. This is the fun part. What we want to do today is we want to affirm the leaders that God has brought because God has already brought leaders here. Here's how we do church. We have different roles and responsibilities. So we have elders. Our church is led by a team of elders. There are six right now and one in training and a few more about to be called into training. And so I don't lead the church. The staff doesn't lead the church. Our elders lead the church. You see that in First Timothy and in Titus. You see wherever Paul plants a church, you must raise up elders. It's always a team of leaders. It's never one. Never one. Always a team. We have deacons. Now, Acts 6 is actually not about deacons. It's about the service of the diaconia. It's about the service of managing and stewarding resources so that needs are met, that will eventually become an actual office, a role in the church called the deacons. So our church has elders and our church has deacons. We also have missional community leaders. You don't see that in the Bible. But what you see in the scriptures are leaders of leaders. So how do you take a group of hundreds and have them in smaller groups and thrive? We have what we call missional community leaders. If we call them coffee clubs, we call them coffee club leaders. Whatever you call it, we have people that are recognized and they have the ministry of the Spirit to lead and guide that group in the mission and vision of the church. So as the church is aligned in this direction, we can get that to you. And as you have need, you have someone that you know their first, last name, social security number, and where they live, and you could go to them and there's a quick access to the leadership to get your needs met. Fourthly, we have staff, and that's unbiblical, but not anti-biblical. Like, you don't see church run by staff in the Bible, but it's practical. 
Because in order for all this to work, there has to be a few people who 24-7 are keeping the train moving in the same direction. So our staff, which we have the best staff in the world, our staff is appointed by the elders and paid to make sure that our deacons are equipped, that our mission community leaders are equipped, that our gatherings are top-notch, that our scattering is effective, that our website works, that all of our stuff, that we're able to do this. So we have a small staff because the staff is about multiplying leaders and equipping leaders. That's Our staff is not responsible to take care of your spiritual life. The staff is responsible to multiply leaders so that all of us can do the diaconia. We can all do the ministry together. That's how we work as a church. And we don't talk about this enough, so we're kind of slowing down so that you will know this is what it means to be a part of Sunset, a Jesus church. So today we want to affirm and pray over. What they do is they, they found the group. The people within the group found the people. They appointed them, and then the elders said, you know what? The apostle said, these are the ones, and they prayed for them, they authorized them, and they sent them out, and the work continues. So we have new deacons that have been chosen by people within this community. People within this community have affirmed people within this community who have leadership, managing responsibility, they're full of the spirit and wisdom, and they're already, hear me, they're already doing the diaconia. We're just affirming that this service is important to the community and we want people to know within the community you're one step away from a leader and these are those leaders. So what I'm going to ask to do is before we close, we're going to close by praying over these leaders, praying God's blessing, fresh wisdom and anointing from the Spirit and that you would recognize them as your leaders, that you treat them with respect and honor, that you find out how you can serve them in the work so that their burden is light because you're able to do it with them. And ultimately, every one of these deacons' responsibility is to multiply themselves. So don't be surprised if one of these deacons asks you to serve alongside with them and a couple of years from now, you are one of them. That is the role of people in ministry.